today is Harvest Sunday, a day that we set aside each year to remind ourselves about the importance of evangelism and missions. We're here celebrating our uh, blessings and offering up our gratitude to God for all that He's done for us. But we're also reminding ourselves that there are so many in this world who do not have the blessing that is the greatest of all, the blessing of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Our impetus for Harvest Sunday comes from Matthew 9 and these words, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let me give you just an update on where we stand in this great project of global missions. According to the Joshua Project, the population of planet Earth today is now approaching 7.3 billion people. You can separate those 7.3 billion people into what we call people groups, Uh, Peoples that are grouped together by their common language, their common culture, their common ethnicity. And if you count each of these people groups only once, even if that people group exists in different groups all over in different countries, if you count each people group only once, we are looking at close to 9,700 people groups. So 7.3 billion people, 9,700 people groups. Of those groups, 40% are classified as unreached with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This represents almost 3.1 billion people. If you notice in the handout that we've provided this morning, 86% of the world's Hindu, Muslims, and Buddhists do not personally know a Christian. The harvest is truly plentiful. What about the laborers? Well, in 1985, the world's population was 4.8 billion. So in 30 years, we've added 2.5 billion people to planet Earth. And at the same time, the number of missionaries being sent from North America has remained the same. So we've added 2.5 billion souls that need to be reached, but the number of missionaries we are sending out has remained the same. The harvest is growing. The workforce is not. Billions are dying and going to hell. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs more people with hearts of compassion. Hearts like that of the Apostle Paul. Hearts eager to give themselves to taking the gospel to the lost. And to the perishing. 
And certainly one of our regular prayers here at Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church is that God might raise up some of our own children, some of our teenagers, even some of our adults to go and to be a part of reaching the world with the gospel. Now I think it's providential that we would come to a passage like this one in Romans 9 on a harvest Sunday. Because Romans 9 is about the doctrine of divine election. The passage teaches in no uncertain terms that it is God who chooses his people. When you get down to the rock bottom of why one person is saved and another person is not saved, here is the Bible's ultimate explanation. God chose one and he did not choose the other to be his. One of the great objections to this doctrine of election is this. If God has already chosen who is going to be saved, why share the gospel at all? Why send missionaries? If God has chosen someone to be saved, He will save them. If He hasn't chosen them to be saved, it doesn't matter how many missionaries we send. He won't save them. So what is the point of missions if the doctrine of election is true? And for that matter, what's the point of me witnessing to my neighbor? What's the point of me witnessing to my coworker or even to my own family member? This is one reason that many find Romans 9 so hard to accept and so hard to believe. And so our message this morning is going to be split into two parts. First, does this passage teach the doctrine of election? And second, what does that mean for the cause of missions and evangelism? And I hope by the end you will see that this doctrine does not subvert missions and evangelism, but just the opposite. It strengthens missions, and it gives us courage and confidence as we take the gospel to those who are lost. So let's begin reading in verse 1. Remember, you're not opening up um, the Hardy Boys, or um, what do people read these days? You're not opening up a regular book. You're opening up the very word of God. Okay, this is precious what we're doing. And so I hope you know that. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now Paul has made an important statement in verse 6. Yes, God promised forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation to Israel. And yes, the Messiah has come. And he came bringing forgiveness and he came bringing eternal salvation. And yes, the Jews have rejected their own Messiah. The Jews are not believing God promised that one day the house of Israel and the house of Judah would all know the Lord. Every single one of them. Jeremiah 31. And the Messiah has come and they don't know the Lord. And it looks like God's word has failed. It looks like God's word and his promise has fallen flat. But Paul says in verse 6, no, God's word has not failed. And the reason that God's word has not failed is we've been using wrong definitions. When God promised to forgive Israel and to save Israel and to make all of Israel his own, he wasn't talking about those who are physically descended from Abraham. He wasn't speaking of the biological descendants of Jacob, also called Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He says. And then he told us, and we saw it in verses 7, 8, and 9, that the true Israel, the folks to whom God truly made this promise and keeps this promise, they are miracle children. They are what Paul calls the children of promise. These are people that don't come about through human means. Just as Isaac wasn't born to Abraham and Sarah through human means because Sarah was old and barren. But rather, God had to perform a miracle in order for Sarah to give birth. So it is true that all the true children of God are born of a miracle. We must be born again. We must be made alive by the Spirit of God. Try as you might. You cannot make yourself a Christian. God must do a work in your heart and make you a new creation, giving you trust in Christ and love for Christ. And so Paul has said, see, God has kept his promise. Israel, rightly defined as the miracle children of God, are being saved. And they are being forgiven. And they do know the Lord. So we come now to verses 10 through 13. And we've already learned one truth about this true Israel. We've seen that true Israelites are those who come about by a miracle of God. But now Paul moves to a second truth about the true Israel. He says true Israelites are those who have been chosen by God. And to make this point, he gives us the example of Isaac and Rebekah. So do you remember the story of Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca has twin boys. 
Esau is born first. Jacob comes after him, holding on to his heel. Esau is the firstborn. Esau was the one who would have received typically all of the firstborn privileges. But when it came to the promises of God, when it came to the great covenant that God had made with Abraham and that God had made with Isaac, God says, I'm not giving those promises to Esau, the firstborn. I'm going to give those promises to the one I choose. And I choose Jacob. Paul uses two Old Testament quotations to remind us of this lesson from the Old Testament. So he quotes first from Genesis 25, verse 23, which says, The older will serve the younger. Not the way it normally worked. Normally the younger served the older, but God said the older will serve the younger. And what is really significant about that quote? What is significant is that God spoke those words to Rebekah before the boys had even been born. In other words, we can't look at Jacob and Esau and say, well, Jacob was just a better guy than Esau. right? If I, if I had my choice of which one I would give my promises to, I would choose Jacob. He's a better man. No. In fact, if you read again the story of Jacob and Esau, at least at the beginning, Jacob's a scoundrel. I think you would have chosen Esau. But before either of these, board, either of these boys had been born, God comes to Rebekah and says, the older will serve the younger. There was nothing in Jacob, there was nothing in Esau that was determinative of God's choice. They had done nothing yet either good or bad. This, this is where we get the idea of unconditional election. In other words, God has the sovereign freedom to give his promises and his blessings and his salvation to whomever he chooses. And he does so unconditionally. That is, without anything in us moving him to choose us. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I want you to think about this. Why are you saved when others who have heard the same gospel are not? What would you say is the primary difference between you and others who heard the same gospel but did not believe? Surely we would not say that we are smarter. Surely we would not say that we are wiser. At the end of the day, the reason you are saved while others are not is that God chose to open your eyes and to give you saving faith. God chose to change your heart. And as you heard the gospel, it was the Holy Spirit that did a work in your soul and brought you to salvation. I love the story that Charles Spurgeon tells. I'm going to tell it again of how he first discovered this truth. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. I thought I was seeking the Lord earnestly. I I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is first aware of this. He says, I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths of the doctrine of election in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan said, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron, 
And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown all of a sudden from a babe into a man. That I had made progress in scriptural knowledge, though having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. He says, one weeknight, while I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. But the thought struck me. How did you become a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him, unless there had not been some previous influence in my mind to seek Him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures, but how came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that He was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this holy my constant confession that I ascribe my change wholly to God. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely holy. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Christian, can you speak that way? Can you say before God and others, have you, have you come to the point where you realize that your salvation is completely owing to the sovereign, gracious work of God? A local Christian radio station here in Rocky Mount used to play sermons by um, Bible teacher Donald Gray Barnhouse. I don't know if I haven't heard them lately, so I don't know if they still play them, but uh, Barnhouse was a gifted preacher. Barnhouse would often speak of the doctrine of election this way. He would ask his hearers to imagine a cross like the one on which Jesus died. He said, imagine that this cross is extremely large and it stretches to the sky. And at the bottom of the cross is a door where people may pass through that door and go into heaven. And over that door, there is a sign, and the sign says, whoever will may come. Whoever will may come. And then he said, there are those who choose to pass through the door of the cross into heaven. And as they enter paradise, and they look back on the door that they came through, they see another sign on that sign, which reads, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's exactly what Paul was getting at here in verse 11 when he says that God's blessing is not because of works but because of him who calls. Do you see that? It is not because of works but because of him who calls. In other words, the ultimate cause of our salvation is not found in any work that we've done Salvation isn't found by walking an aisle or praying a prayer or being baptized or joining a church. There is no work that brings us to to salvation. The ultimate cause of our salvation is Him who calls. So why am I saved? I'm saved because God looked down on me in my helpless condition. And just like Jesus called for dead Lazarus to come up, and Lazarus, not in his own strength, he had none, he was dead, But Lazarus, by the very power of the word of Jesus, rose from the dead. So also the gospel came to you and came to me if you're a Christian. And Jesus, through that gospel, spoke. And by the power of his word, he called you forth. 
and you believed and you were spiritually alive for the first time. The other passage that Paul quotes is from Malachi chapter 1. It's a, a verse that people often struggle with where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So you have these two brothers equal in every way except that Esau would be born moments before Jacob and God set his sovereign merciful love on the one and not on the other and people struggle with that word hated why would God say that he that he hated Esau well if it helps know that in Malachi chapter 1 God seems to be saying that he loved Jacob by giving to Jacob his precious promises, and a relationship with him. And so the meaning of hated in Malachi chapter 1 seems to be God rejected Esau. He did not give to Esau his promises. He did not bring Esau into a relationship with him. So to be loved by God is to be graciously brought into a relationship with God. To be hated by God is to be left apart from him is to be left apart from his saving promises. Now, why would God choose to give his precious, glorious promises to some and not to others? Well, Paul says that it all has to do with what he calls God's purpose of election. In other words, God has a purpose. He's not being arbitrary in choosing some people to be his children and and others not. It's not as if God takes the names of all human beings, puts them in a hat, shakes it, and then randomly picks out names. That's that's not how it works. God has a sovereign purpose that he is working out. And in accordance with that purpose, he saves some that he has chosen and not others. This is why we preached our series, God of Glory, before coming to Romans 9. Do you remember what we saw? is the great purpose for which all things exist in this world. Our conclusion from Scripture was that the purpose of everything is that the glorious character of God be expressed for His own enjoyment and for the enjoyment of His creatures, angels, and the redeemed. God displaying his attributes is the purpose of everything. More specifically, we saw that the Father is joyfully honoring the Son. The Son is joyfully honoring the Father as together they display their awesome characteristics, their awesome attributes for their own enjoyment. So here's the situation. After the fall of man... You have a humanity where everybody is born blind. Everybody is born running headlong into hell. Every person is born guilty, not only of Adam's sin, but the moment they're capable, they sin. And so they're under the just condemnation of God. And if God chose to save no one, he would be absolutely just and absolutely righteous. But if God chose to save no one, how would he show his attributes of grace and his attributes of mercy and his attributes of compassion? If God chose to save no one, there would be no cross, 
There would be no amazing grace to sing about. An entire important aspect of the glory of God would remain hidden and unseen and unloved and unpraised. But on the other hand, what if God chose to save everyone? In a single moment, God could cause every person who has ever lived to know him and to trust him and to be his forever. The blood of Jesus is of infinite value. The blood of Jesus, should God choose it to be so, could cover the sins of every person on planet earth. There could be no hell if God deemed for there to be no hell. But then there would be no expression of another part of God. His righteousness. His justice. His wrath towards sin. Sin deserves an infinite punishment. If God saved everyone, there would be depths of God. There would be parts of God that would never be expressed, never be seen, never be loved and worshipped by his saints in heaven. In other words, both heaven and hell exist as theaters in which God displays his glorious attributes. In heaven... God puts on display the riches of his grace as Christ reigns over his blood-bought people in a new heavens and a new earth. And in hell, God displays the riches of his justice as Christ reigns over the wicked and the unrepentant and they are punished alongside the devil and his angels forever. And so this is the purpose of election that Paul speaks of, that God's attributes might be fully expressed, fully known, fully adored by himself and by his holy creatures. And so it is in accordance with that purpose that he chooses to save some and not others. What effect should this doctrine have on your life? Certainly it should cause us To find our pride utterly destroyed. You cannot take credit for your salvation, dear Christian. Did we believe? Yes, we believed. Did we choose Jesus? Yes. Did we repent? Yes, we did. But we did every one of these things because God had first chosen us. We love him because he first loved us. There's no room for boasting in the Christian life. The doctrine of election offers grounds for assurance of salvation. If my salvation was based only on my choosing Jesus, I could lose that salvation. Because what if tomorrow I chose not to love Jesus? I may have chosen him yesterday and was saved. I might reject him today and be unsaved. If my choosing God is what gains salvation, then my rejecting God is what loses it. This is why historically those who have denied the doctrine of election, like the United Methodists, for example, they've also denied perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. When you lose election, you lose assurance. But if my salvation is based on not my choice of Jesus, but his choice of me, well, then I can trust the words of Jesus when he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will lose none of those that the Father gives to me. 
God has not chosen to give a people to his son only to let them then perish. If we are God's now, we are God's forever. The doctrine of election promotes holiness. And it does this in a couple of ways. First, understanding the doctrine of election causes us to pursue holiness because it is through a holy life that we begin to have confidence that we truly are part of God's elect. And so you could go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, and Paul, uh, Peter basically gives this list of, of characteristics. And he says, if you live this way, you can be making your calling and election sure. You can have confidence that you are God's if these characteristics match your life. But second, once you've come to believe that God has chosen you, and once you've come to believe that his love is on you forever, the joy of being one of God's people should result in greater obedience, joyful obedience to him. But of course, there are many objections to this doctrine and many objections to Romans 9. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with Romans 9 and you're struggling with this difficult teaching from God, please know that you are not alone and you are not the first. I've shared before, this chapter was a wrecking ball in my life. I spent months trying to prove that it does not teach what it teaches until I couldn't deny it any longer and I had to come to a place of surrender. My experience was much like Jonathan Edwards. He says this, he says, from my childhood, my mind was full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting those whom he pleased, leaving them to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. He says, it used to appear to me as a horrible doctrine But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God. My mind rested in it and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this. So that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense. And God showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will. He says, God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is in what in my mind I seem to be most assured of as much as of anything that I see with my very eyes or at least it seems so at times. I have often since that first conviction had quite another sense of God's sovereignty than I once had I have often since had a conviction as a delightful conviction. This doctrine has now often appeared for me exceedingly pleasant, exceedingly bright and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. I think there are thousands of Christians who've had an experience just like that. They first hear the doctrine of election. They're first given Romans 9 and they fight against it and they object against it and they they don't like what they hear. And then over time, as they begin to see that the universe centers around God and not us, that he is the most important thing in the universe and not us, the doctrine begins to change. They begin not only to accept it, but they eventually come to love it and it becomes a rock for them. 
So if you're here this morning and this is a hard teaching for you, this is a bitter teaching for you, hold on. Stick close to your Bible. Keep reading. Keep studying. Keep praying. And you may find that God will cause for you what he calls for Jonathan Edwards, an alteration in your mind in which you will go from seeing this as something hard and difficult to something sweet and faith-building and love-producing. Now, I mentioned that there are some common objections to this doctrine, and we're not going to cover those this morning because Paul's going to cover them. That's, that's, that's the next paragraph. There were objections in Paul's day. He knew there would be objections, so that's, that's where we're going. Uh, one of the most common objections is, this isn't fair. <laughs> How can God choose to save some and not others? Isn't that unjust? That's exactly the objection Paul's going to deal with, and so we're going to go there next, next week. But I want to close this morning by dealing with the objection that we started with. If God has already chosen who will be saved, why share the gospel? Why send missionaries? Doesn't this doctrine of election undermine evangelism and missions? The story goes that when William Carey first stood up to ring the bell for the cause of world missions, And he was standing up to speak of the need for missionaries and the need for churches to unite together around a missionary cause. There was a man named John Ryland who said to William Carey, sit down, young man. When God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your help and mine. Is that how we should see it? Is that what the doctrine of election teaches? Let me give you three reasons that divine election does not undermine evangelism and missions, but strengthens them. We'll do this quickly and we'll be done. Number one, the truth of divine election does not change the fact that God uses means to save his people. God uses means to save his people. In other words, just as clearly as the Bible teaches that God chooses whom he will to salvation The Bible also just as clearly teaches that the gospel and Christian witness are what God uses to bring about the salvation of his people. Our God uses means. This is why Romans 10 comes after Romans 9. If you think divine election is a hindrance to missions... You've got to deal with the fact that Paul goes straight from teaching about election in Romans 9 to teaching about the cause of missions and evangelism in Romans 10. You know Romans 10, 13-15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul goes straight from election in Romans 9 to send preachers in Romans 10. God uses means. Paul went about preaching the gospel in many different cities. How did Paul describe his own ministry? In Titus 1.1, Paul described his ministry this way. He said, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. 
In other words, Paul saw himself as an instrument in the hand of God going from city to city, taking the gospel in which God's elect would hear the gospel, be born again, and believe. He was a laborer being sent out into the harvest in gathering those whom God had already set apart to be saved. God uses means. Number two, without the doctrine of election, the cause of evangelism and missions would be hopeless. Would be hopeless. Do you see this? Remember what Ephesians 2 says about natural man. We are all naturally dead in our sins and trespasses. Left to ourselves, no one will ever trust Jesus Christ. This is Romans 3. There's none that do good. No, not one. None that seek after God. Real saving faith is a moral impossibility for fallen man. If God doesn't choose to give people faith, we can't produce saving faith. We can't do it. It's interesting that when Paul was in Corinth and he was discouraged... Because there was all this opposition confronting his evangelistic ministry. Here is how God comforted Paul. He encouraged Paul with these words. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This is Acts 18. And Paul, he hasn't found these people yet. (laughs) He's saying, what are you talking about? God's people. But God says, Paul, I have people in this city. Keep on preaching. They're not saved yet, but they will be saved because I've chosen them. They're mine. You speak, I'll save them. This was an encouragement to Paul. God had people in that city. And there were souls to be won. And God was going to give them faith. He just needed to preach. Related to this, number three, election gives us reason to share the gospel in confidence. It gives us reason to share the gospel in confidence. James Boyce put this very clearly for us. Just listen to what he says. He says, If the effective agent in salvation is not God's choice and call, If the choice is up to the individual or to us because of our powers to persuade people to accept Christ, how would we even dare to witness? In other words, what if it's it's not God that saves? What if it really is up to the person to believe and therefore it's up to us to persuade them to believe? Could we live with that? What if I was witnessing to somebody and I made a mistake? What if I was witnessing to somebody and I gave a wrong answer? And because of that, they didn't believe. And they are now going to spend an eternity in hell. Could I live with that? Could you live with that? If salvation is ultimately up to their choice and us being able to persuade, that is a terrible way to live. John MacArthur has said if if divine election isn't true, he would get out of the ministry. Because that kind of pressure is too much. It'll paralyze you. Boyce says, no, we can be fearless 
knowing that all who are called by God will come. If God has elected some to salvation, if he is calling those elected individuals to Christ, then we can go forth boldly, knowing that our witness does not have to be perfect, that God uses even weak and stuttering testimonies of his grace, and best of all, that those whom God has chosen for salvation, he will indeed save. This is why some of the greatest missionaries who ever lived were solid believers in the doctrine of election. William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, John Patton, David Livingston, David Brainerd, Jim Elliott, all of these great missionaries of the past found encouragement and comfort in believing that God had chosen people among the nations and that through them he would save them. In the 1800s and the early 1900s, There was a group of churches formed that argued that you should both believe in the doctrine of election and be passionate about evangelism and missions. And those churches were called Missionary Baptist. And this church and others like ours were founded as a part of that group. But this is not only our tradition as a church. This is biblical and it's right. And so with supreme confidence in the sovereignty of God, we should pray and we should give and we should go with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.